0: Well, good morning, friends. All right. So good to see you today. My name is John Brooker, and uh, it is my pleasure and my honor to be here on behalf of our senior pastor, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Hoy, to continue our message series that we've entitled Major Truth from Minor Prophets. And so, We've been uh, well. You can see from our laundry list that we're we're ticking them off. Uh, we're going to be talking in or looking at the book of Nehum this this morning. And uh, I had originally thought that it might be cool to read the whole thing. It's not very long, but I decided that perhaps we will just focus on the um, on the first fifteen verses of chapter one. Last night I said the first fifteen chapters. Yeah, and that got kind of a chuckle because there aren't 15 chapters, (laughs) as we'll see in a few minutes. And and so with that, uh, I would like you to hear the word of the Lord. And this is from the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps his wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah... I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, there on the mountains. The feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. So let's pray, and if you'll stand with me. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity this morning to be together with one another and with you. And we thank you Lord for this time and that in this time that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, that as the psalmist prayed that we would be able to behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. So as I mentioned the book is fairly short, Uh, it's only three chapters uh, comprised of 56 verses The first chapter is an introduction and the announcement of the pending doom and the fall of the city of Nineveh. And the remaining two chapters are the description of that coming destruction. And so this morning I'm going to ask a series of really basic questions as a means to kind of help us uh, dig into this book. And so the first question that I want to ask is: who is this Lord? And you think, well. Isn't that kind of a silly question? (laughs) I mean, when we read our Bible and it talks about God and the Lord, we're pretty sure whom they're talking about, right? Well, I asked the question from the perspective of the Ninevites, who you remember are a pagan culture, we're a pagan culture, and the norm at the time was polytheism. So there were lots of gods being worshipped at the time. So if a new prophet rolled into town and go, hey, y'all, I got a message from God. It's a logical question that that the folks in response would say, okay, great. Which one? If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were in the book of Jonah. and, uh, And Pastor Paul had noted that Jonah didn't record. It didn't seem that Jonah had said anything much to the Ninevites about who God was. If you remember his, uh, his very famous, you know, the shortest sermon on record, in Jonah 3-4, it says, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Okay, so that was it. That's all he recorded. Now it's possible uh, that Jonah had said some more to them that he just decided not to write down. It's also possible that the folks in Nineveh, Nineveh were all already aware, at least at some level, uh, that the Hebrews had a God... Uh, and because they were unique, remember they were the only ones at the time that only worshipped one God. And so by reputation, you remember when they were uh, being successful in the land of Cana, when they first got to the, you know, to the promised land, their reputation might precede them. So it's possible. Okay? But Nahum makes it clear. Uh, the first eight verses in chapter 1, which we just read, established the source of Nahum's prophecy. He uses one of uh, God's proper names, Jehovah, in Hebrew that's pronounced Yehovah. He describes Jehovah's nature. He says he's jealous, avenging, wrathful, slow to anger, great in power, he's just, by no means will he clear the guilty, and he's good. And then in poetic language, Nehum describes Jehovah's power and authority. His way is in whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him." So a modern paraphrase of all that might go something like this. I have a message from Jehovah. He's the heavyweight champion of the cosmos. He's undefeated. You can't beat him. And right now, he ain't happy with you. That might get my attention. So I do want to pause here for just a few moments and look at the importance of context. And I'm going to give you a quote from a not so famous theologian and it says that assessing God's attributes out of context or evaluating Him as we would another human being leads us to an improper understanding of God. Now my wife Alicia and I are doing a daily Bible study called The Bible Recap. Some of you may be familiar with that and you may actually be doing it. Now there's an opening prayer that they recommend that you read every day before you get started. And it includes a request to God that He would correct any lies that we believe about Him or anything that we misunderstand. And I like that part of the prayer because it reminds me, it reminds us That one of the primary focuses of our Bible study should be to get to know God better. And so when he's described in the Bible, it's very important for us to understand what that means in context. So if I had a friend, I said, "Uh, hey Jeff, uh, I got this buddy I want you to meet. And uh, my friend Jeff might say, great, uh, what's he like? And then I started to list those characteristics that Nahum just said about God, and, and Jeff probably would not want to meet the guy, right? Well, what's he like? Well, um, uh, he's jealous. He's uh, wrathful. I mean, angry, wrathful kind of stuff. He probably would have given me the big time outside of this. <laughs> no, thanks. Right? But that's natural. That's a natural response because those qualities in human terms are not good qualities. Who wants to be friends with a jealous person? Or somebody that's angry and wrathful. I mean, wrathful, that's you know, anger on steroids, right? And because of that, we might be tempted to try to do the same thing with God. To dismiss those characteristics that don't seem to fit or to, uh, that we don't like. Basically, to create our own list that better fits with our picture of God which is, in essence, us creating him in our image. And, of course, we know, according to Scripture, that's not right. But when we consider the whole of Scripture, that's when we get the right picture. Now, let's just look at the word jealous. The word jealous, translated here from Hebrew, is the Hebrew word uh, kano, and there's another variant pronounced kana. And according to Jesenius' lexicon, it is, he describes it this way, used of God as not bearing any rival. And we just sang about that. No one gets to sit on the throne of God. Not fear, not anger, not shame, not darkness. No one sits on the throne of God. He doesn't bear any rivals. And he is the severe avenger of departure from himself. Now, those two variants, interestingly, are only used in reference to God. The root word from which they are derived, also pronounced "kana," is most often translated in the ESV as envy. And that is never, that's a term that's never applied to God. So, that kind of gives us a sense... A foundational understanding that there's something different about God's characteristics. About his jealousy and everything else. So in similar fashion, he's described as a vengeful and wrathful. But again, in context, that's against his adversaries. Okay, well, who are his adversaries? And the Bible is clear that these are people who actively set themselves up against God. So it's not like God's got the giant board of smiting hanging on his wall. And every morning he wakes up and he grabs a big dart of wrath. And he closes his eyes and he chucks the dart at the board. And he says to the angels and the hosts of heaven, And today I shall smiteth the Hittites. Fortunately, it does not work that way. And I thank God for that. You have to actively set yourselves up against God. He's also slow to anger. And what that means is you have to try to get on the adversary's list. And he's giving you time uh, to repent, to stay on focus, to stay on track. 2 Peter 3 9 says, The Lord is not slow to anger or slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. And the Ninevites are a perfect example of this. And Jonah, if you recall Jonah, uh, he had just, uh, God had just told Jonah that he was going to, he was going to stay his execution uh, on the city of Nineveh because they repented. And you remember Jonah was all salty about that and he was having a really bad attitude. And, and God says to Jonah in, in chapter four, verse 11, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Wow. Despite their wickedness, despite that the Ninevites had set themselves up actively against God, he still gave them an opportunity to repent. And they did, for a time, but over the course of the next hundred years, they went back to their old, vile ways and it was by their own actions that they made themselves adversaries of God. And clearly, that's not what God wanted for the Ninevites. And it's not what He wants for you or for me. That, friends, ought to bring us a whole lot of comfort. Amen? So we now we know a little bit about who the message is coming from. What about the messenger? Who is Nahum? And that's the Hebrew pronunciation, by the way. Pronunciation, by the way, and I just like the way it sounds. So, who is Nahum? Well, much like the other minor prophets that we've been studying, we don't know a lot about him either. Well, we know his name was Nahum. We know that the name in Hebrew means consolation or comfort. He was from a town or a village called El-Kosh, and we don't know anything about that definitively. The location is unknown. It could have been in southern Judah, a city that later came to be known as El-Kashi, near where the prophet Micah lived. Some have even suggested that it was Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And that's because when you pronounce Uh, The pronunciation in Hebrew of Capernaum is kafir nehum. Kafir nehum, which means the village of nehum, or the village of comfort. Now Capernaum, as most of you know, is where Jesus set up the headquarters for his earthly ministry. In Matthew 14 it says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, Mark 2, 1 records, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So we have the author in the embodiment of comfort, the provider of comfort, Jesus, residing in the town of comfort. Okay, we don't know for sure, but that's an interesting connection. So what about this city? What about Nineveh? Well, the city was the ancient capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it was established by King Sanheriv. I always want to pronounce that Sennacherib. but that's what you do with your barbecue leftovers. No? Okay. <laughs> Sanheriv. I just like the way that sounds as well. And the city, the ruins of the city, are actually located near the modern, or in the modern city of Mosul, Iraq. And some of the, those of you in the military might have actually had the opportunity to visit. Now, like many things in the Bible, many truths in the Bible, people doubted that the city was real until it was, in fact, discovered uh, around 1845. Now, estimates say that it encompassed about 1,800 acres, which would have been 2.8 square miles. It had 15 gates, the perimeter wall was 7 miles, 7.5 miles in length, and some of the walls are estimated to be up to 148 feet thick. That's almost half a football field. So it was a place. In Hebrew, the, 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 the city is pronounced Nineveh, and it means the abode of Ninus. Now, Greek mythology credits the founding of the city to a king by that name. But in Genesis chapter 10, scripture identifies Nimrod as the founder of the city. And Nimrod, as you may recall, was the son of Ham and the grandson of Noah. Some ancient writings suggest that they were the same person. Again, it's one of those things that's not clear and we just don't know for sure. So when did Nahum deliver his prophecy? Well, he wrote the prophecy while Nineveh was still a very powerful city. And history tells us that its disintegration began around 627 BC. So the time frame, rough estimates of his prophecy would have been between 627 BC and either 610 or 612 BC when the city was in fact destroyed. Uh, it was over hundred years after Jonah's original mission, mission to the Ninevites and their amazing revival. Jonah 3.5 as you recall records, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. But unfortunately, the revival of that time had long since fizzled out. Again, they went back to their old vile ways. In fact, at that time, Ad- in Syria had already invaded and defeated the northern kingdom of Israel and was continuing to harass Judah on many, many fronts. So what's going on? Well, Nahum probably preached in Judah, from Judah, the southern kingdom, most likely during the reign of King Manasseh who was one of the most evil kings in Judah's long history. Now previous kings before him had already established uh, Judah on the bad road. They had set up what the Bible calls the high places, places to uh, for idol worship. And they were on hilltops, they were under trees, sometimes they actually created temples for the worship of these idols. Well, Uh, Manasseh's dad, uh, King Hezekiah, was one of the only good kings in the history that was trying to put Judah back on track. He had literally just finished destroying all those high places. Uh, Manasseh becomes the king, and he says, "Mm, I'm going to take things to a whole new low here. So not only did he rebuild all of the high places that his dad had just finished destroying, but then he also set up altars in the temple, and then he even placed an idol in the temple in the temple of God, okay? And that's probably the worst thing you can think of because that was the place, remember that God promised David and Solomon that that's where his presence, that's where his name would dwell forever and ever. Okay, so now this guy says, okay, we're we're just going gonna to throw all that out the window. And not only that, but he sacrificed his own son uh, in a ritual to the, and he burned him as a burnt sacrifice to the pagan god, Molech. 2 Kings twenty one eleven says he was more evil than the Amorites. Now, if you remember, the Amorites were one of the nations that occupied the land of Canaan when the, Israelites, when the Israelites first came to town, and God had devoted them to destruction because they were so evil. Now, if you want to dig into that more, dig more into that. Check out Leviticus chapter eighteen, because all the rules that God had established for Israel. Were to distinguish them from the people in the land. To say, you are different. And that included the Amorites. Now Manasseh did have a pretty significant conversion near the end of his reign. Uh, around 648 BC. Which is only about uh, half a dozen years before his death. But the damage in Judah was already done. Okay. Now Charles Swindoll, in a message that he delivered on Nahum, wrote... That Nahum preached during the darkest period in Judah's history to that point. This was a time that was filled with idolatry of all kinds and a nation that had completely turned its back on God. They had set themselves up as adversaries of God. Why was this message important? Okay, another good question. And though the focus of the story is on Nineveh's destruction, it is actually part of a much larger narrative that includes Jonah, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, even Isaiah. And you see, the Assyrians had oppressed Israel and Judah for many years, and it was brutal oppression, and there was no apparent end in sight. And the Lord's willingness to send Nahum again, whose name means comfort, into such a hopeless situation, evidences his unrelenting and overwhelming grace. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Certainly then, you would think, this news would have been a great relief, at least to that faithful remnant in Judah. And remember, God always preserves a remnant. Amen. He always preserves a remnant of his people. And so that would have been of great comfort to those faithful few. But there's more to this message. It's more than just about comfort. There are a few significant reminders tucked away in here that I'd like to share with you. The first, God is still God and he is still in control. All throughout Israel's history, God had used nations and people groups, not only as instruments of His judgment, but also as demonstrations of His power and His authority. Think back to the Exodus story, Pharaoh, Moses, the plagues, the magicians, the magicians were able to recreate some of the plagues up to a point, and then God steps in and says, Well, beat this. And he demonstrated his power and authority over nature, over everything. The second reminder, that God had not forsaken them or forgotten them. In fact, he was keeping promises that he made all the way back to Moses and Joshua. Deuteronomy 31.7 reads, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. The third reminder. What God had declared to them as his chosen nation. Over and over and over and over again so many times. If you walk in my statutes. And you observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in season, and the land shall real yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And that's from Leviticus chapter twenty-six, and from Second Chronicles seven fourteen, which many of you probably have memorized. It says, "If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face," And turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so, when you're in dark times, it's good to remember it may take time, but the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. He makes good on his promises, but they're in his time. Now this is a major theme in the Old Testament, and it was continued by Jesus. In John 14:15, Jesus says, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." In John 15:10, he says, "If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love." So considering all of this then, the central message of this book begins to emerge. Now, just like in the story of Jonah, uh, we have a tendency to focus on the big fish part. Because, after all, that's pretty cool. Right? Uh, And it's it's the same thing here. In in Nehum, it's easy to focus just on the physical destruction of the city of Nineveh. I mean, after all, two of the three chapters of the book talk nothing about except that. They just say that. Right? Um, But if we look a little bit more closely we can see a more enduring message that God's wrath is poured out on the wicked. God's wrath will be poured out on the wicked. Now, at that time, the idea that this city, this mighty city of Nineveh, was going to be destroyed probably would have come across as kind of ridiculous or even comical. For 200 years, they had amassed wealth by invading and brutally robbing other nations. Nahum describes it as full of lies and plunder. As I mentioned, Nineveh was exceedingly pagan, they rejected God completely, they worship a false god uh, named Ishtar, and the Ninevite leaders had a reputation for being horribly brutal to their enemies. And God was getting ready to hold them accountable. Now this brings us to a very important question, one which I ask a lot when I'm studying scripture. So what? I mean, Nineveh, okay, big powerful city, ancient civilization, 612 BC, that's a long time ago, they don't exist anymore, things are different now, so what? Right? Why do we care? Well, there's two things I would like to offer you in response to that question. And the first is that even in our dark times, even in the darkest times, we can take refuge in the stronghold of the Lord. Verse 7, which we read earlier, says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The word stronghold is a very powerful and I believe a very relatable image. In verse 7, God is also described as good, which is very true, but the word by itself doesn't evoke the same mental imagery that the word stronghold does. In fact, it's one of the Old Testament's favorite images of God, and it conveys that picture of a fortress, that position of security and safety and a place that you are completely safe on all sides from your enemies. Now, many of us, probably all of us, at some point in our lives, maybe even right now, have felt overwhelmed by darkness, either within or in the world around us, or maybe even both. And and you may be wondering, or may have wondered, just, Lord, how long is this going to go on? How long do I have to endure this? Well, Nehum obviously lived in a very dark time as well. A time in which that faithful few must have wondered the exact same thing. How long would they have to resist cultural and spiritual compromise? So even in dark times, we can take refuge in the stronghold of the Lord. The second, so what? God knows who those people are. God knows those who take refuge in him. Even in the midst of a corrupt and evil society, God knows who the faithful are. In Isaiah 43.1, God reassured Israel. And he says, Now, thus says the Lord, he, cre- he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. Jesus reassures us in John 10 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus says, I know them. Jesus says, I know who you are. Now that friends should be very comforting. You may be feeling so consumed right now by your circumstances or so lost in the culture around you that you're pretty sure that God couldn't find you in a crowd if he wanted to. Well, hallelujah, his word tells us that is not true. He knows those who take refuge in him. So the big question for you and for me Have you ever found your will, or perhaps are you finding that your will right now to do what's right is being weakened by discouragement with what you saw in your life or perhaps what you're seeing in your life now in the world around you? The prophet Nahum reminds us of God's active hand, working even in the darkest of times to bring justice and hope to our world. So let me leave you with this major truth from our minor prophet. The Lord is true to his word. He is great in power. He will by no means clear the guilty, but do not lose hope. He is slow to anger. He is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Graces and Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you, Lord, that you sit on your throne and that we can come against fear and darkness and pain and anger and anything that wants to take its place on your throne. And we can cast that aside in your love and in your hope and in Jesus' name and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.